Welcome and thanks for checking out this podcast from First International Christian Fellowship. The following message you are about to hear was carefully crafted with you in mind. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope that this message speaks to you as it did to us. Now here's Richard Fenimore delivering this week's sermon. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon this time that we're together in your word. Help us to push everything aside, be here with you. Um, mind, heart, soul. I pray that you always, your Holy Spirit, the true teacher of the Word of God, will be here with us and guide us. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I think the kids already left, huh? Uh, I was going to tell them to scram, but you know, they, they're too fast for me. Um, I want to remind you on cell phones, if you have a cell phone, please take the time to turn it down. We had Jesus call in my meeting the other one. He was perfectly okay with us calling him back. So, um, so if you're like me, you turn your cell phone up and you put it in your wife's purse. So that's, that's what I do. So um, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, stewardship and uh, stewardship and act of love. That means they're going to do it, right? They're much better at it than I am. I really fumble with that thing. <clears throat> So not only did Joe abandon you, but he left you and left you with me. But we're going to talk about money, our favorite subject, right? Thank you. Thank you. Stewardship, an act of love. Um, I, I want to look at this from the point of view of, we always look at money from our point of view. And we, I think when we look at, at, at uh, offering, um, we look at it from a different point of view than God does. Um, offering is in itself, the money, is a very small thing to God, an unimportant thing to him. There's something that comes before that, and that's love. Without the love, the gift means nothing. And so that's what we're going to talk about. So I wanted to do a, a definition. You know, I was going to make a, a joke that, you know, Gab's always messing with me on this stuff, you know. He, he puts it in there, so I don't, I've never seen it before, and he just likes to mess with me. I think that's what it is. <laughs> um, the definition. Um, it's the job of supervising or taking care of something, uh, such as an organization or property, especially property, financial affairs, um, and an estate, et cetera. Examples of... of uh, of stewardship are required in money. That's why we think about it most. But it's also in time. You know, if, if, you, um, if you don't set your time aside properly and you're not a good steward of your time, you won't be in church on time. You won't allocate your time to the Word of God. Okay, so stewardship is not just about money. Stewardship is about a life that has been given to us by God and that we are managers of it and we're called to be responsible for that. Our bodies... Um, but you didn't expect that one, huh? In reality, we have a responsibility. God gives us a body. We have a responsibility to be good managers of it, to be careful what we do with it. You only get one, you know. I tell my wife all the time, this tent's getting a little frayed lately. Zippers aren't working. Some of the windows just, you know, I don't know. Um, I turned 68 last week, and um, before I think it was. Which I think is why they put the chair up here. They knew that there's an old guy going to do this. But um, 68 is a big number. You know, it's a huge number. It kind of scares me a little bit, but I'm going to live forever, so I suppose I shouldn't be worried about it. 
Marriage is another thing that requires stewardship. Most of us go through marriage and we just, we just think it's going to happen. But in reality, it takes planning. It takes thought. It takes, um, Jesus says that we are to take care of our wives as Christ took care of the church. That's, he spent a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice. It's really something we have to think about very carefully. We tend not to manage our lives, but we should be. As Christians, one of the first things I always remember about Christianity is that God tells us we need to be self-controlled. And that self-control goes everywhere. It goes into our family. We need to be good parents. We need to set that time aside. In our country, this is one of my big peeves. I can spend a whole sermon talking about this one. If you do not vote, you are a rotten Christian. Okay? Just, I, I like to mix words, you know, just kind of you know, be gentle. Um, because you have a responsibility. You're, you are a citizen of heaven, but while you're on this earth you have a responsibility to be the very best citizen possible. You have a responsibility to vote the values of Jesus Christ, not yours, his. Otherwise, don't tell people you're a Christian, okay? Just tell them you're, I'm not going to go there, just leave alone. In your job, it is your responsibility to manage your job. You need to work for your boss as you would for Jesus Christ himself. You work hard, long hours, you do your very best all the time. Stewardship is a big job. But you know something? When, when Christians do stewardship right, everybody notices. That is the example that Christ did for us. Okay? The doctrine of money. <sighs> okay. I, I suppose I want to establish one point. Some of the points I'm establishing are just because they're, they're questions that come up. But one of them is that money is a legitimate means of exchange. Okay, a lot of people you get people on, on the left and the right about and within a church and they have a lot of weird thoughts about money. Okay, money is legitimate means of exchange. Okay, however you use that. Uh, and this goes to Genesis 23.9. This is where Abraham buys a, a cave. Uh, so it says, uh, so he will sell me a cave of uh, Machpelah. And belongs to him, this is talking about the guy he buys it from, and is at the end of the field. Ask him to sell it to me, this is Abraham requesting it, for the full price as a burial site among you. Okay? And this is, if, if you know anything about this particular cave, this is where uh, Abraham is buried. Jacob's buried, Isaac's buried there, and, and his wife. Um, an additional reference for this, I'm putting additional reference, but we're not going through them, is Jeremiah 32:44. You have a place that you can take notes if you want to. Those are for the, uh, you know, the, the people who want to do the PhD side of the program. They want to look at every verse. So, uh, like my wife, you know, so I'm putting her down. There are things that money cannot do. And it's funny because whenever you talk about money with people, these are usually the things they say, oh, I know it can't. But really, these are the motivating factors, okay? So money cannot make you happy, okay? Uh, the believer's happiness is unique and it is based on his knowledge and application of biblical principles. I will call that Bible doctrine. That's, that's what I'll use the word for. It is directly related to his spiritual maturity. Now, your happiness, if you're not happy, it's because you're doing Christianity wrong. I just don't, um, if you're not happy, and I, and I don't mean that in, a, in, um, in the weird sense that you see it in Christianity where they're jumping around, we're so happy. You know. Not that stuff. That just drives me nuts. That means you're crazy. But what I'm talking about is the contentment that you have that resides in you. 
that is different. That the world's going around around you and you are centered on God. That's contentment. That's happiness. And that is directly related to your knowledge of the word of God. Because your knowledge of the word of God is directly related to the love of God that you have and you possess. Okay. Uh, money is not security. Um, money provides no security, no security whatsoever. I'm doing a class in Revelation. There's a piece at, in during the tribulation where people have lots of money, billions and billions of dollars, and they're terrified because the Lord's coming after them. Okay, so money is not security. It feels like security, but in reality, it is not. The only security is faith in God, who provides perfect security. Okay. The, um, one of the verses here is Matthew 6, 33. And this is, this is a piece right here. This is really a great piece. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not your righteousness, his. Okay? You don't have righteousness. I hate to tell you that. Uh, we have a song that says you do, but you don't. Um, you, Isaiah 64, 6 says, your righteousnesses are as filthy rags to me. Okay? So if you think you have righteousness, that's what they are. Okay, they're filthy rags. It means they stink every time you do them. Okay? So God doesn't want your righteousness. He wants his righteousness. Okay? His righteousness in you. Okay? It says, and all these things will be given to you as well. What things? Everything. Okay? If you want happiness, then you seek the kingdom of God. Okay? For us, the kingdom of God is the church. That is what it is today. When he was speaking this, it was, the church did not exist at that time. In Matthew 6.33. It would come along later, about uh, three years later. So the, the way you get everything is to put God first. Okay? Money cannot buy everything. Is there, there's a, you know, it's always amazed me, and I, I always make a joke. I'm a, I'm a horrible guy for making bad jokes. Um, you know, when, when somebody's really rich and famous and they have millions and millions of dollars and they kill themselves, I'm the guy who pokes the joke at them, okay? I sit there and say, isn't it strange that they have everything that everybody wants, fame, money, recognition, and they kill themselves? That, that tells you something. That tells you that happiness and security is not there, okay? Most people are going that direction, even Christians, but happiness and tranquility is not there. Money cannot buy everything. The most important things are not for sale, but they are God's gift to you, okay? Salvation, love, happiness, stability, and tranquility. Those last two, interestingly enough, are the desires of most people. They want their life to be stable, and they want them to be tranquil. Only God can do that. The peace that passes understanding. The doctrine of money continued. <laughs> Giving money is an expression of the believer's love for God. It is part of his royal priesthood. Now, the reality is that you are all royal priests. That's what the scripture says. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal people. Now, how do I know this applies to you? Because 1 Peter writes it. Who's 1 Peter written to? The church. So he's talking about you. It would really help you to know what he's talking about here. Why royal? Any of you feel like kings lately? And the priesthood of God, 
You are royalty. Okay? And priesthood is specific. Priesthood, what do priests do? Priests have a relationship one-on-one with God. That's what we have. We don't need a priest. We don't need anybody else. We don't need the pastor. We don't know anybody. Our relationship with God is one-on-one, God in person. You have a problem, talk to God, okay? He's the first one. You have a relationship with him, hopefully, okay? You have a positional relationship with him, even if you don't have a real relationship with him. That makes sense? Many people do not have a real relationship with God because they don't, they don't put God in their lives. It's their choice not to. What they do is they go around and do things, and they come to church, and they do all the good stuff. But in reality, they don't have a personal relationship. Our God is personal, intimate, okay? And that royal priesthood is to be taken advantage of. We're a holy nation, which means that collectively, as the people of God on earth, we are a nation. God's special, we are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Not your wonderful light, his wonderful light. First okay. Corinthians 6, uh, 16, 2. On the first day of every week. Now, this is an important piece here. Um, and I put this in here because it's part of the, the doctrine. What it means is that what we do, and I'm going to pick on some people, although I don't know who you are, and, and obviously it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm going to use you as an example. So if you're here, you know it, I don't. <clears throat> but a lot of people violate this versus Christians, but this is Paul's recommendation to the Corinthians. This is the way that you're supposed to do offering, okay? It says, on the first day of the week, every week, that's Sunday, uh, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That means not above your income, not below your income, in keeping with your income. Now, this assumes that you're prudent. Prudent is an important part of being a Christian, okay? It says, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Now, what he's saying here is that if all of a sudden I say, hey, guess what? You know something? We want to buy a new house, and we, need, we want to do a special offering for Rich here at the end of the service. And uh, I'm going to be looking at all of you and make sure you throw your 20 bucks in. I, I wouldn't do that, but it is kind of entertaining. But the whole point is that when somebody puts you under pressure, it forces you to violate this verse. Okay? You should never give money under pressure, ever, okay? Many times, believers and leaders unwittingly violate this verse. What you need to do is you need to think about it with your husband and your wife, and you need to talk about your budget, and you need the plan, and you need to set it aside, okay? Uh, What it doesn't look like as he's passing the plate, where's that five bucks? Uh, uh, I hope everybody was looking. The whole joke is that that's not how you do it, okay? That is pressure. You you know, you might as well keep your five bucks, okay? The Lord gave you zero for that. And and all you did is embarrassed yourself, okay? Before him, not anybody else. Most of us don't care about money, especially if we're not getting it, right? So this is what we do. We, We sit down, we go through our budget, we think about it. We think about what that is. We think about what we feel comfortable with. We think about what the the Lord has given to us. Okay, And that's what you base it on. You think about it before you ever show up here. If if you're not doing it that way, you're doing it for a different reason. Okay, And you need to examine that reason. 
But this is how the Lord says to do it. Lust for money, sometimes called materialism. If you lust for money, it makes you it makes money a god and you its slave. Okay? Now, a lot of us would sit there and say, well, I like money, but no, I'm not in this character. This, I'm not this guy. You know, I don't have this lust, you know. If money, if you think about money all the time, that's you, okay? Because in reality, it does drive you. It drives the way that you think. It drives the things that you do, okay? The thing that's supposed to drive you is God's word, is your love for, for Jesus Christ. That's what's supposed to drive you, not money. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 24. Says, and this, this is an axiom. Axiom's a law. It's a principle. You can't violate these laws. Okay? No one can serve two masters. Okay? Either you hate you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay? They are opposed to each other. They're opposites. If you love money, your love for God will dwindle to nothing. That's, that's what that's saying. You have a choice. You have to make it. Okay? Luke 16, 10 through 12. Whoever can be trusted, this is a great piece too. A lot of people use this incorrectly. Whoever can be trusted with a little can also be trusted with much. Whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Let's just stop there. If God can't trust you with something small like money, he can't trust you with anything else. Certainly not salvation. Certainly not the gospel. Certainly not representing him. Because those are the big things. Money's nothing. God doesn't need your money. I don't know if anybody told you, but he owns everything. (laughs) You know that little uh, cows on a thousand hills? He, He owns everything. You know, the, the cows in that thousand hills just to help us grasp it. But in reality, God has everything. He doesn't need your money. It's not from the point of God's need. It's the point of your opportunity. That's what it is. It's the opportunity. And it has, when, when somebody, is, it's kind of like with your kids sometimes. You, the real object is to try to get them to do something that's going to help them. You know, like I really like having my kids work like little slaves you know, rocks and things like that. Just really hard labor. Um, and I don't even have to have it done. When my kids were little, I'd say, see that pile of rocks? I want you to move it over there. And they'd get done. I'd say, well, now I want you to move it back. And it wasn't because I needed to move the rocks anywhere. I, I wanted them to build character. I wanted them to learn how it was to sweat. It, it, that was the object. And this has that same object with us, okay? If you can't give of your money, if you cannot find an agreement between you and God, then in reality, God can't trust you. That's what that is. Okay, that's his piece. God can't trust you. So don't expect him to give you this great spiritual experience and to raise you up in some kind of maturity because you're not trustworthy. Money is a small thing. Okay? Verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy at handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? That's the point. The true riches are the things of God. 
Now, I want to just do a caveat here. I'm not telling you to be foolish with money. That's just as stupid. You need to be frugal with it. You need to be intelligent with it. You need to manage it. You need to think about it. It's part of stewardship. God gave it to you. The example to me is that if God gives you 100 bucks, hopefully you get that much, right? <laughs> and you spend 110, not only are you stupid, but you are violating the principle of stewardship completely. That makes sense? So if you overspend, which our society does that a lot, in reality, you are violating that principle. The offering is not something that you think of at the end of your budget. It's the thing you think about in the beginning of your budget. Okay? That's what the principle of first fruit came from. You know the festival of the first fruits? That's where that came from. You give your first and best to God. Then everything else, that's yours. Okay? That's what that principle is. Verse 12, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you uh, property of your own? These are all axiom principles. Now, there are many dangers for the unbeliever. We're going to cover the unbelievers and the believers. Many of them are alike, but unbelievers actually have less to lose, okay? Because they don't have anything eternal uh, at risk. That makes sense? Uh, salvation cannot be purchased with money. Uh, Mark 8, 36 and 37. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet to forfeit his soul? Okay. When the people who have money and fame and find out that it's not worth what they thought, that's what they come to. Okay. They do themselves in because they have no value system. They, they think there's no hope. Okay. And that's what happens when you put your faith in the wrong thing. There's no hope. It will not do what you want it to do. Or what can, it, what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? This is to let you understand that, that your soul is worth infinite value. And where your soul spends, spends eternity is of infinite value. Okay? Money is what caused the rich man to put his trust in things rather than God. This is the example here. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard, this is what, remember this is the rich man who said, what do I need to do to be saved? You know, what do I need to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, let me see. He gave him like five commandments. Well, you, uh, you know, have no God before you. And he went through the whole things. And, and the guy said, oh, I've done all that. He says, well, just give up your money and follow me. He goes, oh, wait, What? Wait a minute. What do you mean? This is the response to that. He says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for, a rich, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Pretty easy. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone uh, who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the eye of the needle, you've heard it before. This, is, this isn't the eye of a little tiny needle. That would be stupid. 
Okay, <clears throat> it's the it's a little small portal that they have in a city fence when they built the cities. They put him in, but the guy had to uh, he couldn't he couldn't come in the in that door on his camel or anything else. He had to walk through with virtually by himself to show he's disarmed. Okay? He has nothing. Okay, so um, you can't do it on a camel. Okay, that's the whole point. You can't do it. You can't get there from here because it's not high enough. Okay. So his point here is that, in reality, it is very difficult for rich people to get into heaven, okay? How easy is it to get into heaven? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's the easiest thing there is, okay? Rich people, and I don't want to say, too, is that there is nothing wrong with being rich, okay? I, want to, I should have said that first, right? If you're rich, awesome. That's cool, Okay? You're along with Abraham, David, Solomon. There's a bazillion people in the Bible who are rich, filthy rich. Money's not the point. The point is that when it becomes more important than God. Okay? That's the point. There's nothing wrong with being rich. One of these days, I might be there. Richard, right? <laughs> okay, that's as rich as I'm going to get. Um, money can be a, an obstacle to seeking salvation. And that's the whole point here. That's their problem. Um, and this is a, a long verse, but it's actually one of my very favorite pieces here. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in a luxury. You guys know this. This is Lazarus and the rich man. Okay. Um, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, okay, who covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted the garbage. He wanted to be... You see those guys out in the green cans? That, that was Lazarus, okay? Um, even the dogs came to lick his wounds. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him off, him to Abraham's side. That's Abraham's bosom. That was also called paradise. It actually, uh, just to give you some reference, uh, Abraham's bosom and paradise were not up. They were down. They are actually in Hades, Okay, there's four compartments in Hades. This is one of them. When Jesus says, even this day you'll be with me in paradise, the paradise he's talking about is down, not up. It's called paradise of the king, and it's where the Christian believers used to be in the Old Testament. When uh, Jacob says, he says, I'll even have my head go down to, to Sheol, he says, I will go down to Sheol, right? Sheol is the same word as Hades, their Old Testament equivalent. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. I probably said that too fast. But just to give you a reference point, okay? The rich man also died and was buried. That's where we go. In Hades, that's the underworld, okay? Uh, Hades is not hell. They're actually in the Bible, even though there, you have a King James Version, it will translate it hell. There is no such word as hell in the Bible. All of them are either this word, Hades, which is the under earth, or Sheo in the Old Testament, Okay? Um, where he was in torment. Now, torment is, the, is where he was at. The unbelievers went to torment. The believers went to Abraham's bosom or paradise, okay? Um, and so that's why it says that. Torment is the place. It's what we, most people, would call hell, okay? Um, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man's dead. Okay? Yet he sees, yet he hears, yet he talks. This is, one, this is not a parable. Okay? How do you know it's not a parable? 
Parables, parables never use personal names, ever. That's one, of the, that's one of the deciding points. If there is a personal name used in it, it is a real thing happening, and Jesus is the one who sees this, okay? He's seeing this. This is not a parable. It's a real thing. So this, the, the insight, this is the best verse to explain what life is like the moment you die. This tells you what it is. If you want to, if you notice that he recognizes everybody, he recognizes Abraham. Abraham died two thousand years before he, this point took place. Yet he recognizes him. There's no pictures of Abraham. He recognizes him. He recognizes Lazarus. Okay. The point is that you will recognize your friends, your family. You'll be perfectly clear in your head. It'll be walking through a veil. That's what death is. This is the best example. You want to know what dead people do that are in heaven and hell? This is what it looks like, okay? Um, so let's look how much fun the rich man's having, okay? So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Has always amused me because I'd have asked for a bucket, you know? Uh, a finger. If, if you're in agony, I don't know why you, won't, you would ask for a finger of water. But that's what he does. That shows you how, what it would take to satisfy. That's how much torment is. When the, the, you have to understand is that when you die, the question isn't where you live forever, it's where you will live forever. You will either live in heaven forever or you will live in what most people would call hell forever. That's the choices. There's not a second choice. You have faith in Christ and faith alone, you go to heaven. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins, you are going to hell by default, and God can't save you. Okay? Let me see. So where are we? But Abraham replied, son, he's an Israelite. Okay, so that's why we call him that. Uh, remember that your lifetime, you receive good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Let's stop for a second. So this isn't about that all people who are comforted and have great things go to hell, and all people who suffer go to heaven. That's not true. That's a lie. Okay? The principle here is that his great stuff distracted him, and somehow he thought that that was going to be his, um, that was going to be a safe salvation. He was going to have life in eternity just like he had life. Okay? And that's why money can be very distracting. Many can make you think things that are not true, and that's where he's at, okay? He does know why he's there, and we'll, we'll get to that, okay? He says, um, and besides all this, this is something that Abraham's explained to him, besides all this, this is a truism he's explained to him, between us uh, and you, there's a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go here uh, to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It is an unpassable uh, cavern. It cannot be crossed. So even if Abraham did have mercy on him, and Lazarus did have mercy on the rich man, he could not do that. Okay? That is not possible. It cannot be crossed. It is designed that way by God. <clears throat> he answered, then I beg you, Father Lazarus, uh, Father Lazarus, tell you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. See, he remembers his brothers. He remembers everything. You will remember everything 
when you get to heaven, looks like everybody's believers. I suppose we'll all be there, right? Uh, which would really be nice for me because I'm forgetting a lot of stuff lately. Um, let them, let him, Lazarus, warn them. You know what I think is funny about this is that here's the rich man still ordering Lazarus around. <laughs> I just, oops, sorry about that. But I just, it's just amusing. Hey, just send Lazarus again there over there, would you? Um, I don't think he quite grasped what he's at. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Okay? So he cares and loves for his brothers, but he still knows that they're unbelievers and they're going to be following him. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophet. What is that? That's the Bible. That's Bible doctrine. Okay? Um, let them listen to them, Moses and the prophet. Okay? What, what does Moses and the prophet say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what it says. It also has all the things we're talking about here. Okay? Let me see, where are we? Listen to them. Now, no, Father Abraham, they said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. See, that tells you right there, he knows the problem. Repent. Repent. What does repent mean? Repent means to change your mind from something you thought was not true to something you've come to know is true. Okay? We use it like there's an um, emotional part of it, but there really is an emotional part. It's like, I used to think Jesus Christ was a really nice guy. Cool. I really liked him. But then I realized that he was the son of God and my savior. That's repent. One idea to another. So he knows the problem. He knows that doctrine. He just ignored it. Okay? Uh, repent. Verse 31. He said, to, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophet, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Do people, do people who know that Jesus returned, do they, does it change their mind? No, and that's, that's the whole point, is that if you've decided that you're not going to believe, there's nothing that's going to change that. Jesus came back, and many people still did not believe, even with the resurrected Christ, and that's the point. His point here, the whole point of this thing is that the rich man was distracted by the riches to the point that it cost him his salvation. He depended on something that wasn't true. One of the principles... Money has zero credit with God. You can't buy your way to heaven, okay? Offering doesn't even help you, okay? Proverbs 11.4, wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but the righteous, righteousness delivers from death. This tells us that in reality, wealth can't help you, in reality. And the day of wrath is the judgment of God, okay? When disasters happen and God is part of that judgment, their money will not save them. But will, will save them is the righteousness delivers them from death. People who seek the righteousness of God are delivered. Okay? They're delivered from God's wrath. Proverbs 13, 11. Dishonest money um, dwindles away. But whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. That is a key principle right there. You gather money bit by bit, little by little. It's a plan that you have. 
You have a plan and you lay everything out and you gather it bit by bit. Why is that important? Is because it puts money in its right perspective. It's about prudence. It's about thought. It's about doing the right thing. That makes sense? That's what that is. Okay. There are many dangers for the believers. Now we're getting to something important here, right? Um, many money can enslave believers. This is Ecclesiastes. Um, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is written from a worldly point of view. It's one of those books, it's written by Solomon, as you know. Um, it's one of those books that if you didn't know God and you read it, you'd want to kill yourself, Okay. Wisdom's worthless, money's worthless, I and mean, it just goes on and on. It's like, okay, so what, I just kill myself? Is that the answer to the story? Um, he, he, he actually doesn't answer it that way. But he, what he does is, you know, he writes down his experience as Solomon had more money than anybody who's ever lived. He had more women, he had more wives, which, tells me, which questions his wisdom, in my opinion. <clears throat> anybody even have 600 wives and still survive? I don't know. That's, one baffles me, Okay. Right, honey? That's it. That's it. Um, so the point is that he writes down all of his failures here because he had the opportunity to fail in a, in a magnificent way. I don't mean magnificent, I mean great, big. Um, so here's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10, 12, 15, and 19. Whoever loves money never has enough. That's one of the interesting things about money is that you can never have enough money. Before I was a believer, I remember saying to myself, so somebody asked me a question about this, and I remember very well. He said, because uh, I said, well, I, I want to be wealthy. I want to I have money. He says, well, if you had a million dollars, would you be happy? I go, uh, no. He says, what about 10? It doesn't seem like enough. You know? and, what, and that's what this is saying, is that if you have money, you can't have enough of it to hit the goal. Okay? What happens is it gives you uh, what's called a, an insatiable appetite that you cannot satisfy. There's a lot of things like that. Drugs are like that. Alcohol is like that. Sex is like that. Money is like that. Power is like that. Okay? When not put in their proper place, they have the same quality to them. They, they produce in you something that will never be satisfied no matter how much you have of it. Okay? And you can see lots of people have billions of dollars. They're not happy. They want billions of more. Okay? I get that. Um, Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. That's his punchline. It's meaningless. It's a waste of time. Um, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, um, whether he eats much or, or a little, little or much. But for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. See, they can't sleep. They have all this stuff and all this money, and, but in reality, they can't sleep at night. And his axiom at the end is everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. You're not taking anything with you. Zero. Okay? And these are his points, okay? These are all true statements. Um, oh, I have a last piece. That they can carry in their hands. Don't get to carry anything in your hands, sorry. But you can put it in your casket. I suppose that's the satisfying thing. For somebody to find later on, right? 4,000 years later, like the, like the mummies. <clears throat> Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and their ability to enjoy it, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. That's the answer, okay? That's the answer. 
when God gives you that. See, the gift isn't just the money. The gift is the capacity to enjoy the money. And that only happens with spiritual maturity. The key is not the money. The key is God. The key is the relationship with God. That money is just money. And it's like, that's cool. But it's not the most important thing. You sleep at night. You, you enjoy it. You actually have happiness from it because you have the capacity to enjoy it, whether it's a lot or it's a little. This is a gift from God. The love of money is the root of many evils. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6 through 11. But godliness, and this is, his this is Paul recommending this to, to Timothy to help him uh, sort this out. So, but godliness with contentment is a great, great gain. And godliness is a, it's a cool word. I've always liked the word since I first read it. The, word, the Greek word is eusabaya. And it means to uh, conduct yourself as a godly person. Okay, that's godliness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, for we brought nothing into the world, he repeats the axiom, and we can take nothing, of it, uh, nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into the temptation uh, and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. If you have issues in your life, money just multiplies them. Okay? Does that make sense? When you walk with God, God takes care of the issues. So they don't become the factor. That's his point there. If you're driven by money and its desire, I'm not saying you shouldn't want to get ahead. That's, that's the American dream. Capitalism, you're going to hate this part. Capitalism is Christianity. Most people don't know that. If you look at how God handles it, capitalism is Christianity. It comes up in James. We'll, we'll touch on it just for a little bit in, in this next piece, I think. Um, but there's nothing wrong with being a capitalist. I'm a capitalist. I love capitalism. I think it is the greatest way to provide the most good to the most number of people in our society. It is. Uh, it's when you get weird about the money that it makes you make a mess of things. Okay? And lots of people do that. And capitalism gets a bad name sometimes for that reason. Uh, for the love of money is, is the root of all kinds of evil. That's verse 10. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves, not physically, <clears throat> with many griefs, which means that people who sometimes are Christians and God gives them that blessing, in reality, that blessing becomes a cursing. Okay? The blessing becomes a, curse, becomes a blessing when you put it in its right place. And it just sits there. And you do what God, you recognize that it's not your money. God gave it to you. God gave you everything. He gave you the breath in your lungs. He gave you life. They're all a gift, okay? But you, man of God, talking to Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Gentleness is actually a good word for maturity. But these words here are telling us, this: don't pursue this, do this. And, and, you know, it's a good warning for Christians because Christians tend to be the most industrial people in the world. They are. Why? Because we work hard because Christ is our, when we work for. That's why. I, I, I give something to my boss if I know that Jesus would approve it. You, here, is it, did I do a good job? Great. Thanks. Then I do it. That's my job. Okay? What that lends us to is being successful, prosperous, and rich. 
It's just true, okay? We understand the principle of sowing and reaping. We get it. And when you operate that way, the natural consequence of that is wealth. What happens to many pies, we, we ran into this in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, especially at the ap- end of chapter 3 and the later the scenes, where they had so much money, they, out, they actually started feeling that they didn't need God. And that's where they went wrong. It's a very common problem. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. We're going to have a great time. First Timothy 6, 17, 19, command those who are rich. This is, this is a biblical command from the teacher, Pastor Timothy, to the congregation. So that means it applies to us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, okay? Nor to put your, whole, your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Wealth can come and go. It's important to know that. Uh, but to put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God provides you with everything. Everything you have is from him. That's why you shouldn't be arrogant about it. If God gave it to you, you didn't do it. Okay? Command those to do good, to be rich in good deeds. See, he's saying, don't be worried about the money. Be rich in good deeds. Now, these deeds are not the deeds of just doing a lot of nice things. The, the word here, good deeds, is the word godly deeds. It's the word agathos. It means to be good in godly deeds, okay? This mean go build something for the poor. doesn't mean feed the poor. That may be something that God wants you to do. But in reality, this is to take your money and to use it in a godly way, as God leads you, okay? Um, to be generous and willing to share. That's not Christian communism, Okay, this is where you find somebody in need and you have the opportunity to share that with them. That's what that's encouraging. Okay, God is not a communist, by the way. Uh, I already told you he's a capitalist, right? I'm just kidding. Um, In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What coming age? That one that's in the millennium, the one that's on the other side of death. Okay, there's a lot more to explain that one. But that's what that is to set that firm foundation. All we do is for the future, for the eternal. That's what we should be focused on. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Okay, That's the Christian life. That's Eusebia. That's the godliness it's talking about. That's the true life. The Christian life is the true life. Okay, If you do not have a personal relationship with God and you know the word of God and you're growing in those things, you are wasting your time and you're living a life that God did not intend for you. Okay, Money can destroy the believer's grace orientation. God is grace oriented. We should be grace oriented. It's called divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is the viewpoint of God. Not my viewpoint, God's viewpoint. Okay. Acts 5, 1 through, 5, 1 through 10. We're not really going to go through this, I just, but most of you guys are familiar with this. This is the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, um, sold a piece of property with his, full, with his wife's full knowledge. That's important. <clears throat> um, he kept back uh, part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Uh, when you first read this, you don't understand what's happening here. It makes you think that 
the requirement is to give God all the money when you save something. That's not true. You have to look at before this when you look at what Barnabas did. What Barnabas did is he had some land. He sold it. He gave all that money to the the church so they could feed the poor. Okay? Barnabas was a rich man. Okay? Um, What Ananias and Sapphira did is that they sold some property, and they kept some of it back, and they gave some of it to the church, and they said that that's all of it. We gave it all, okay? That's the crime, and we'll, we'll see this in a couple verses, okay? Um, so Peter says to Mrs. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? That's the crucial part. He lied to the Holy Spirit. The church is at the beginning of its time. This is a crucial act, okay? Um, and have kept for yourself some of the money you received uh, for, um, for the I and I don't know what that is. Okay, so <laughs> the point is that what happens is that he, 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 he gave some to them, but he kept some of it back, and he told a lie about it. Okay, that's the real point about it. He says, didn't, and, he's, and he's asking a question here. This is a Peter. He says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money still all at your disposal? So he's saying, you have the right to make any decision you want to make. Don't lie about it. Okay? Don't make yourself more than you are. Okay? Um, um, what made you think of doing such a thing? And the point is that you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You think you can lie to God, you're really stupid, right? <laughs> it's only a dumb thing to do. Ananias heard this and fell down and died. Boom, he's dead. They carry him off. Three hours later, his wife comes, verse 7. Okay, Peter uh, asked her, tell me, is this the price? This is a key part here. Is this the price that you and Ananias, Ananias got for the land? See, that's the real question. Now he brings that into view. We know what they're going to lie about. Um, Tell me, is this the price that you and I have paid for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. See, there's the lie. There's the lie that Ananias did. Okay? And this is why they're held responsible for it. Uh, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell, and she died, both her and her husband. The crime wasn't the fact that she didn't have to, that they didn't give it that they didn't give at all. The crime was that they lied, and this was the critical part of the church and the church period. So, what does that tell us? It's, it is temptation to deceive when you have money. It's very difficult. The big issue with that is not the stupid money. The big issue is the spiritual loss of character. That makes sense? That, that's what God, God, God wants you to grow in maturity because this you're going to have forever. That money's going to come and go. You're not going to remember it. I don't know about you, but I don't remember what half the stuff I spent money on. Oh, my wife spends our money. Never mind. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I never can take these shots when you know, we're next to each other, so have a little fun up here. Uh, James 5, 1 through 6. Now, this is a part of about capitalism. It says, now listen, this is James talking about the same thing. These are believers he's talking to. How do we know that? It's the context of the verse. He's talking to Christians, and Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, okay? This is to show what money does to people, uh, even believers. 
Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. He's talking about divine judgment. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. He's talking about what the money has done to them, okay? It's, it's your gold and silver are corroded. I don't know if you much, but gold and silver doesn't corrode. Gold doesn't. It's pure. That's one of the things that, that's so important about it, okay? Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. That's judgment, okay? You have hoarded the wealth in the last days, your last days, but this is also the last days of Israel, if you know where this is at. Uh, Israel will be wiped out in uh, 70 AD. By the way, Israel will be wiped out and will not be returned until 1946. No, 1948. Was it 49? Something like that. Something in there. 47. Similar in there. Um, look, that's the capitalized there. See, I mean, look, has the exclamation point. The wages, this is the crime of the rich person. And this is a temptation of rich people. Okay? The wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters, uh, this is prayers actually, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. He's talking about his workers there. What they did is that they had all these, this money and they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't pay them. They cheated them to the point that these people couldn't live their lives. Okay? They murdered them in some cases. These are Christian rich people. That's why they're the context of James. Okay? It tells you the power that money can have over you. It's enormous. Uh, Jude 11, last piece here. <clears throat> no, we got plenty to go. I got plenty more pages here. I'm just talking. About uh, Jude 11, woe to them. They have taken the way. This isn't Jude. This is one chapter long. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, each of those are three different pieces, but it says woe to them. And it's talking about Balaam's error, which is the point. And that is found in Numbers 22, 24, we're not going to read that. But what happened is that Balaam was a believer. He was a man of God. He was a prophet of God. He was the one who was, if you remember, he was the one who was giving instructions um, to, to figure out how to undermine the, uh, the, the Jews as they were walking through the land. But his, his motivation was he wanted the money. Okay? And because of that, he was, remember Balaam's ass? Remember Balaam's ass, the donkey that talked to the guy? That was him. So this, the joke is that Balaam's ass was smarter than he was. No, okay, so anyway, Balaam, Balaam had the ass, and, and God was, he saw the angel of the Lord was going to kill him, and they got into this fight. But it was all about the fact that what, what Balaam was doing is Balaam had a gift, and that gift he used wrongly. He tried to benefit from that gift of God. And what he did, he was trying to find a way to deceive God and kind of get around God's directives. So God said, don't do this. And God's saying, well, and Balaam's going, well, let me see if I can. Yeah. And he was the guy, ultimately, Balaam, figured out a way to um, harm the Jews in a major way. Okay? And because of that, he actually did finally get the money from the king 
made lots of money, got a high position, and ultimately he died with all that. He was, that's in chapter 24. But it tells you that even men who have, and he, and he was fairly wealthy anyway, but the money had that draw to him. He's a believer. Money can draw believers, okay? We all have sin natures. Um, we're all relatively stupid without God. Actually, I should say we're completely stupid without God. But now I want to talk about tithing for a second because tithing is a big thing about money, okay? You hear it come up all the time. It's become synonymous with offering. But in reality, it is not, okay? And I bring it up as a, because this is at the crux of, of sometimes giving. Giving is not tithing, okay? Ever, okay? It never is. The word tithe is an old English word. It means a tenth. Okay? It's an Old Testament word. It is used two times that I'm aware of in the New Testament, but only in Matthew. And no, Matthew, once in Matthew, once in Luke. And it is used as an Old Testament reference. Okay? So in the Old Testament, it was an income tax. Tithing was an income tax. Okay? Um, because Israel was a theocratic state. And theocratic means, theo means democratic means rule. So it means that it was a country, Israel was a country, that its religion ran its state, okay? So they were together, not like ours. We have a separation of church and of state. A lot of people don't believe that, but Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, give unto God what is God. They are not mixed. We are not a, um, we are not a Christian nation. We are a nation of Americans that has Christians in it. Our principles are mainly Christian. Virtually all of them are. Um, if you know me, you know that that's true. So in reality, there were actually three tithes. Okay, three, not one. Now, remember that's 10th, 10th, 10th. Now we're starting to sound like our income taxes, huh? Um, and I'm, not, I'm just going to put the references down here. But one of them, number A there, one of them is for the maintenance of the Levites because the Levites had no inheritance. Right? They had no land. They didn't get the inheritance. They just had the temple, and they got food. But one of the tithes that, they, that Israel did was um, just for their maintenance. That's in Numbers 18, 21, 24, reference only. So if you really want to find those out, you can. The other one was whenever they had national feasts and sacrifices, there was an income tax called a tithe for that too. So that happened twice a year. Okay? And then the third one only happened every three years. This was a tithe-specific to the poor and the destitute. It was a separate. So you got taxed the first time for the Levites, second time for festivals and offerings, and the third time, once every three years, you get taxed again, on top of the other two, for the, um, for the poor and the destitute. Those are your references there. The other part is that tithes are part of the Mosaic Law. Okay? Mosaic Law is specifically for the Jews. The Old Testament Jews. It's not for us, okay? It is not a Christian principle. There is no tithing in Christianity. None, okay? What are we Christians to do? Now, here's when we start getting into the real meat and potato stuff, stuff that applies to us. You thought we'd never get here, huh? Well, we still have a couple hours. We can do it. Um, an example is the Macedonians. Now, these are the people like the Philippi, and people like that, the Thessalonians, that's where, that's where the, the Macedonian is kind of like northern Greek, okay? That's where Alexander the Great was. So it's all those guys up there um, 
in the upper part of what would be uh, Greek in that time. But they're called the Macedonians. But those are the Thessalonians, the Philippi. Um, yeah, Philippi, yeah. And um, it says, uh, they gave generously, um, though they were poor and in affliction. This is the example for us, okay? What is Paul's point here? The point is, and he'll discuss it, is that if these people are poor because they've been persecuted and they are in affliction, yet they give, then you have no excuse. None of us are in that spot, okay? And his first example is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. Now, Joe actually covered this stuff, but we're going to just use it because it applies. He says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church, the grace that God has given them. That's the ability to do something they should not be able to do, but God provides for it, okay? In the midst of their very severe trial, these people are being persecuted. They're being robbed. They're having their property confiscated. They're having their families destroyed. That's what's happening there, okay? In the midst of this very severe trial, their overflowing joy... Now, note that joy, that's what they have is joy, okay? And their extreme poverty well up in rich generosity. Those, those shouldn't fall in the same sentence. When you are severely under trial and you have extreme poverty, you don't get overflowing joy unless you have a godly perspective, Okay? You don't have, you're not rich in generosity because you don't have anything, okay? Yet, they do, and that's what happens here. This Paul, this, this same piece is used by Paul and all those other references, every one of them. So it's his point. That's his point. Giving must be done freely. This is great news, right? Great news, freely. God gives it to you to decide. There's no tenth. There's no three times ten. That's even better news. It's for you. You can tell when somebody is telling you something that's not true by the way in which it's done. Okay? No matter who does it. Because this is the word of God, that God be true and every man a liar. That's the point. By your own free will, not by any co being coerced or pressured or emotionalism. So when they show you the little puppies and the little starving kids, that's emotionalism. That's pressure. You're being used. Okay? And I'm sure that's not a very popular thing to say, but it's true. Okay? Because giving from God's principles has to be done freely. No pressure, no guilt, zero. If you feel guilt, your offering is worthless and you get nothing for it. You might as well go to the rib cook-off and spend it. I don't know if you can eat that many ribs, but. Second Corinthians 8.3, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability? The grace of God, that's how you do it. You set it aside, you ask God, and you say, God, I want to participate this, but I don't have enough money. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Would you show me? And God 
showed them. They didn't sit there and say, well, you know something? We're just not going to pay the babysitter. She won't mind. We're just going to, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to just cut this. No, no. God does, God does things one way. You always have to do the right thing in the right way. You can't do the right thing in the wrong way, and you can't do the wrong thing in the right way. God does them one way. God's way is the only way, or God rejects your offer. Church may get it. Somebody may get it. But God counts you up as a big, fat zero. In fact, if anything, it actually, one of those little stinky things we were talking about, your righteousnesses, God takes it and says, okay, at the judgment seat of Christ, we get to burn this. And we're going to bring this up because you were an idiot and everybody should know it. That's the stuff. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, end of the verse, where it says there'll be gold and silver and wood, hay and stubble. And that's the stuff you're accountable for, the wood, hay and stubble. The stuff that you did that God said, it's not my stuff, it's yours. You felt guilty. You thought you were impressing somebody. That's the stuff we're going to talk about at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Grace giving. In the same manner you received it from God. Okay? We receive everything we get in grace. Okay? That's how we give in grace because that's how we receive it. We don't give anymore because we don't have any more. Only the grace of God. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. You know, I read this today and I thought, Joe would love to hear you guys say, please, Joe, let me give some more money. I just, please, can we, can we be part of this? I think he's going to be disappointed, <laughs> but... This is, the, this is the whole point here. And these people aren't rich people. They're not Americans who have everything. These people have nothing. They are persecuted. They are poor. They've had their money stolen from them. Yet they pleaded with Paul to be part of giving to the Lord's people. And the Lord's people he's talking about is that in Jerusalem, the believers, the Jewish believers are starving to death. And that's what they want to give. They see that there are people who are worse off than them, and they want to be part of it. So they plead with Paul, please let us be part of this. First, we have to give ourselves to the Lord. This is Christian giving. First, you give yourself to the Lord. Did I say that? First, you give yourself to the Lord. That's, that's Christian giving. There's not a second way. Okay? This is grace orientation the most important step. The gift is secondary. God does not care how much you give. He doesn't care. The only reason he wants you to give is so that you mature and have the blessings that he has set aside for you from eternity past. Forever. Forever. You know, the, the most horrible thing I think is going to be in heaven, although I hear there's not going to be any horrible things, is going to be finding out all the blessings that God set aside for us, and we blew them off. I don't want to know that, you know? I don't, I don't want to know all the opportunities that God gave me to impact his plan in an eternal way that I said, let's do it my way, Lord. Giving is not a one-shot deal but as a way of life. Your tithes aren't what you pull out of your pocket and throw in there so that you're not embarrassed. 
It's money that you think about. It's money that you set aside. It's a deal between you and God that nobody else is part of. Not me, not the church, not Joe, nobody. Two of you, you put it in the envelope. Don't write the price on the stupid envelope. I know we have a thing, but that's goofy. Don't do it. It's a temptation, okay? It's a temptation. It's private. Who's it private with? It's the royal priesthood. It's between you and God. We are very careful in this church not to know what you guys do. I don't know it. Nobody tells me anything around here, but certainly not money. And Joe doesn't either. We're not supposed to know. It's not about us. It is the privacy of the priesthood that God has given to you. It's private. It's personal. It's free. It's between you and God and nobody else. Okay? But know that your maturity falls on it. Okay? It is one of the most limiting factors in Christian maturity. Okay? Give with the motivation of the Macedonians. Love of God. Love of God is the motivation for giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 5. And they exceeded our expectations. This is Paul's. Paul's seen it all. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. That's a recipe, by the way. God writes recipes. Okay? Don't write anything down. Don't give any money until you have taken that step. Okay? I hope Joe's not upset with that answer, right? Just kidding. I know he's not. <laughs> and then, by the will of God, also to us. Okay? Giving is a test of love. It is a litmus test. You know what a litmus test is? It's kind of like a, a gold essay. You know, it's something that you, when you want to find out if something's in it, you take the little taper and you put it in the taper and it gives you a color and then you know it's true. Okay? This is what money is for us. It's a litmus test. It's a test. It's God testing us. And this is what Paul says. He says, the litmus test for, for the believer to evaluate his true love for the Lord. Not, I don't want to know what you do. This is your true love. This is your test between you and God. Okay? It is not a command, not even by God, and it's not a law. And there's no percentage. Okay? It is a response of love. In Christianity, nothing starts with doing. You know that? People always tell you, well, do this and do that. That's a lie. Nothing starts with doing, okay? Doing is a result. It's what comes out of love. It's what comes out of relationship. You do Christian service because you love the Lord. You don't do Christian service um, and, then, and then make that, so well, I'm going to count that on my side of the ledger. No, that doesn't count. That's rubbish. That's that stuff we were talking about before, Okay. I am not commanding you, this is 8-8, um, I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love. He's telling him what it is. I want you, this is, this is not about Paul. Paul's not saying, hey, I want to go, I want to see what you guys are doing. He's not saying that. He says, I want you guys to test yourselves by comparing it, it what? What the Macedonians did 
with the earnestness of others. See, he wants, to, he wants the Corinthians to compare themselves with the Macedonians. Say, let's see between you. You know this principle. I'm telling you what it is. It gives you the chance to test yourself. A lot of times we don't know, um, we don't know how much we love or don't love the Lord because we, we, you know, we kind of live in this little world. We think everything's happy and life's going good. But sometimes God puts you up against something kind of to, to show you where you stand. It's an act of love, okay? Um, I had one this last week where uh, something happened that I was really upset with, and um, I was trying to get God to do it my way. He didn't cooperate, of course. Um, and I was really struggling with it, you know? And I went to my... Um, my best Christian that I know, my wife, and we talked about it, and she was saying, yeah, but, but what about this? But what about, she, she, she's, you know what she's doing? She's sabotaging, she's giving me my doctrine back to me, okay? And she's talking a little bit, and first time didn't go too well. I was, I'm not a great listener. <laughs> Second time went much better, because the Lord had convinced me I was wrong, and I was just thinking, okay, I need to get perspective on this, I have no perspective. Okay. And as I listened to what she was saying, I think, of course, I know the answer to this question. See, sometimes, sometimes you think something's true about yourself and you don't know, and you kind of have to get a nosebleed, you know? You kind of have to trip, bam, your nose smash, you're bleeding, you go, well, that was dumb. That's what I, that's what I had to do. Sometimes that's what, and that's what he's doing here. He's saying, compare yourselves, Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians? They're, they're rich. They're on the they're on the Las Vegas of the world. More, more luxury goes through Corinth than any place in the Roman Empire. These people have everything. That's their problem. Okay? And who's he comparing them to? Persecuted, poverty-stricken Macedonians. He says, compare yourself to see your love of the Lord. Check yourself out. He's not going to check it out. He's giving it to them. Okay? Giving is designed by God to test the reality of your love for the Lord. That's what it's for. I've brought it up a million times. It is, it is not the PhD of spiritual maturity, but you can't get there without having solved it. That makes sense? It will prevent you from maturity. If you do not deal with it, you will never, ever mature. And the great things that God has in mind for you that will eternally bless you forever will not be yours because you couldn't pass a little test. Okay. It is completely dependent on your soul's orientation. You cannot love God unless you know him. That's an axiom. Tell me you love God all the time. If you don't know the word of God and you don't read your Bible, you're a liar. You don't know him. Philippians 1.9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and the depth of insight to the word of God. Okay? That's where love comes from. Love is a result of knowing how awesome God is. There's nobody like God. There's nobody like Jesus Christ. Nobody ever. You know, think about it this way. God knows that you're, that you're a moron, because I'm assuming that you're like me. You know, I'm an absolute squirrel without God. Okay? I don't deserve anything. 
And God knows all that. And he saved me. I don't know why. He's just gracious. He's kind. He's loving. He's forgiving. I've committed a million sins. And, and yet he actually allows me to teach his word. I think that's pretty entertaining. You know? our, there's nobody like our God. There's nobody like him. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. And whatever were the gains. Now, this is perspective. This is Paul's perspective. Paul had it all. So from two men who have had it all, Paul being one and Solomon the other, this is it. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's Bible doctrine. That's the principles of the word of God. My Lord, and whose sake I have lost all things. What are those things? They're rubbish. That's what he says. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That's not salvation. That's knowing Christ. That's walking with him. That's the godly life. That's the use of Baya. That's what God has in mind for us. He does not want to leave us where we're at. He wants us to have happiness. Why? Because God loves us. He wants us to have peace that passes understanding. He wants us to have contentment, but it can only happen in him. It never happens in money, ever. Is there an end to this thing? Okay, we're almost there. Last page. Through spiritual growth, virtue love motivates you to true giving. Virtue love is a pure love that you have for God. It is virtue-based, okay? All love that is worth anything, if it's for your wife and for your children, has to be virtue-dependent, okay? 2 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That would be Christ for us. We're the unrighteous ones. To bring you to God. That was his purpose. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. That's the death of Christ on the cross, and his resurrection by the Holy Spirit, okay? But he paid it. He paid that for you. Our model is always Christ. If you have a question about it, you have to put Christ as your model. The problem is most Christians don't know Christ. They've been taught a lot of gibberish, but in reality, they don't know him. And that's what Paul says. The surpassing wonderful thing is knowing who Jesus Christ is. Everything compares to him. Our model is him. Though he was rich. Rich? There is not rich that compares to what Jesus Christ was before the incarnation. There's no amount of money that can match that. He wasn't filthy rich. He was infinitely rich. I mean, just... Ridiculous, rich in every single way, every way, okay? He became poor. It was voluntary, and it was grace, virtue, love motivated, okay? He got on the cross, suffered the most horrific pain of the sins of the entire world being put on him for three hours Yours were there, and he did that because he wanted to bring you to God, and there was no other way. 
For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The opportunity for the godly life is what he paid for. Not just to be saved. That wasn't the only thing on it. It was so that you'd have all the opportunities and all the blessings that God wants to give to you. But there's a protocol for that. There's a way of getting that. And you have to follow God's way. There's not a second way. Uh-oh, they cut me off. Oh. Ah. Um, what did I say? Um... I don't think we're at the last principle. I think we actually have one more. Can we, is, we, is there a slide back? Ah, there it is. Yeah, you guys thought you were off. Huh? No, 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 no. I'm giving the whole hour just like Joe does, okay? I'm just kidding. Uh, demonstrate your love by giving, okay? Second uh, Corinthians 8, 24. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love. See? Show them the proof. How? The offerings that he's talking about here. And the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Not that we can see it. What they're going to say is that we want to see you do the things you said you were going to do for this offering, for the Jerusalem poor people in Jerusalem, because they were starving to death. Okay, We want to see you do this because we believe in you. That's what Paul's saying. These people who have insulted him, he's saying, we believe in you. That's what he's saying. The reason for our pride, so that all the churches can see what a great church that this Corinthian church really is. I don't think I could say that about Corinthian church, but I'll leave it to Paul. Grace giving is directly related to blessing. This is an important principle, okay? Remember this. Whoever, this is the one I try to read on, on Sundays because this is the point. Every time I read this, I think about the point. I think about the, the drum roll that should have come with it. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. The second piece, I love this. This is my favorite verse. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You're not tricking God. What you do is what you get. You're stupid, you get stupid. It's, it's a principle. It's a prevailing principle. It's my favorite principle. Because every time I want to do something stupid, I remember this. Okay? It occurs to me once in a while. But the point is, is that this is not just talking about money. This is talking about godly blessings. Don't let offering be the limiting factor. And when I'm not talking about amount, I'm talking about process. Think about it. Pray about it. Let God leave you with it. And when you are satisfied with it, make sure you dust off all those stupid, guilty stuff because that'll come to you. It'll come to you. Oh, we should be giving more. We should be doing this. We should be, you have a million. That's rubbish. God says that I want you to give freely. I want you to give from your heart. I want you to give what you feel is right based on what I have given you. So you don't give more. You give what God has told you to. That's the basis of the blessing, okay? Ah, now we're here. Bet you thought we'd never get here. Last principle. 
Giving must be done prudently. Prudent, that, that, that's called intelligent thinking. Prudence is when you think about it. Prudence is when you, you go through it. Like I said, don't take the change out of your pocket. That's, that's the opposite of what God's looking for. If you're going to put five bucks in a little offering thing, fine. If that's what you've come to, that's fine. That's what you're supposed to do. But don't waste your money by being stupid because if you give stupidly, it counts for nothing. Nothing at all. Okay? You're better to keep your money. <laughs> at least you can have some other fun things with it. And it must be done cheerfully. Cheerfully. So when you write that, you should be cheerful. If you're not, it's a test. There's something wrong. Okay? Because all good works results from it. And that's his verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, even your own compulsion or anybody else's compulsion or anybody who ever sits up here and gives you compulsion. You are to ignore it. Okay? For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Note this. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Not some, not money, but every. So it tells you that doing this rightly is the key to doing all good works. It is a step into maturity. If you do not pass this bar, you, are, you stay down at this other level. Don't give them guilt, pride, and never from emotion. Stewardship is an act of love. Let's pray. Dearest, gracious, heavenly Father, only you could come up with a plan like that, Lord. That it is our heart's desire and our love and our cheerfulness, your grace towards us. That is the basis of the blessing and not the money. I thank you for your great kindness that you show to us, not just living in this country that, the way that you provided for us, that we would be prudent with it and have appropriate stewardship, not just in money and in offering, but in every area of our lives. I ask this in Jesus Christ's most holy name who did that exactly. Amen. That's the end of today's message. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and want to support our mission of reaching others, help grow our ministry by visiting ficfreno.com slash give. To get the latest updates from our channel, hit the subscribe button. Visit our Facebook page by clicking the link below to let us know how God is moving.